Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mark My Words. Mark My Words is the only podcast produced exclusively for the independent paint retailer. I'm your host, Mark Lipton. Thank you for listening. Today, we are again recording in the recording studio at the Benjamin Morris Corporate Headquarters in Montvale, New Jersey. And joining us is the Chief Executive Officer of Benjamin Moore, Dan Calkins. Dan, thank you for joining me again today. Thank you, Mark. Good to be with you again. So I thought it might be nice today to uh, get away from the question and answer format that we did the last time and, and just be a little bit more conversational. I'd worked out some topics which I felt dealers and other listeners might be interested in. These were all something that I felt would affect dealers, but they may not have a day-to-day understanding of how these things work necessarily. So are you ready to shine some light into the dark corners of Benjamin Morris? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So over the last few years, Benjamin Morris has created a, a number of new products. ScuffX and Century come to mind, but I'm, I'm sure there were some others. Take me through how that process works for a, a new product introduction. Yeah, that's a great question because there really isn't one way. You know, there's a number of different ways that we come up with a new product concept. So one instance could be a lab innovation where they find some new technological breakthrough that kind of reminds me of like Aura when that happened and Gen X, you know, that, that was more lab driven and, mm-hmm. and, and, and ScuffX is somewhat that way. We found a new resin that, that helped us with the ScuffX technology and the scuffing, anti-scuffing technology. So it's kind of lab driven. In other instances, you know, we hear from our customers, hey, so-and-so has a great product that does this or does that. And in that case, it's more of a, we buy the product, we deconstruct it, we look at what it looks like, and it's it's um, a knockoff, I guess, for lack of a better word. Right. And so do you do a lot of that, or, or is a lot of what you're doing trying to make a, a Benjamin Moore's version of something else that exists that you feel is doing a good job? We do some of that. And, and then the third way is, you know, customer research and, you know, trying to find an unmet need, you know, of a painting contractor or a consumer. And then working in collaboration with the lab is, hey, we've identified this need. We don't see somebody meeting it in the space. So can we come up with something? And so those are kind of the three ways that things start at. And, you know. And is there one that's a preference in your opinion to you or or you're just happy to see the work bubble up like that? Yeah, I, I don't think there's really a preference. You know, we've in all three instances, I would have to say we've had huge successes. And in all three instances, we've had failures. Right. So, you know, there isn't really a preferred path, but I would say the one we probably talk about the most is that middle one, the competitive knockoff, so to speak, because right. somebody will all of a sudden introduce something and our, our dealers will ask us, you know, we wish Benjamin Moore had a product right. I need like something this. like this. And, and so then we get involved in trying to develop something that, you know, performs and, 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 and meets the need. Right. And so tell me a little bit about how long that process takes. So some chemist, just using one of your examples that this starts in the lab, some chemist has an aha moment. Oh, oh my gosh. And so he comes running up to your office with some paper and he says, Dan, if we only do this, I can do this. Right. So from that point until it makes it onto my shelves at Tremont Paint, go a little bit through that process with me and try to add a little bit of how long we're talking about. Yeah, I would say in an instance like that where it's a it's a, a lab-driven breakthrough from a technology perspective, you know, you're talking probably 18 months to 24 months before right. it's really marketable. Right. Um, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into the actual formulation piece. And what I've learned uh, a lot about over the last six months because I've been working more closely with our supply chain and labs due to some changes we made 
last year is that you know going from the lab a small size of a uh, of a can of paint that they invent there then taking it to scale it up so that it can be made in a manufacturing plant and then it can be put in a can and be stable to be shipped all over the world now and such. So the first batches of these are 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 not made in a production setting. You're you're making your first aura is a couple of spoonfuls. Is that what you're telling me? It's probably more than a couple of spoonfuls, but it's it's probably not more than five gallons. Oh, interesting. And so we have a small mixing unit out at the labs in Flanders, and they right. can make tiny, tiny little batches and do all kinds of initial testing and trying to figure out if the product's ready to go to that next stage. And then there's lots of different things where we we get customers involved. We do all kinds of testing. Then we we typically we'll have a market test get it in the hands of the users, get feedback, make sure we have it right. Then we'll go to a market and roll it out to a little bigger audience again, Mm -hmm. make sure that we try to eliminate, mitigate as many of the bugs that inevitably are in anything we make at first. So by the time you're ready to test it in a market, I'm assuming the steps you've gone through are are you've invented this product in your five-gallon can. Now you've made it in in a bigger batch. At some point, marketing has to come in. Something has to have a name. So, so add a little color to that process. Yeah, typically early on, our product marketing group and our labs start working on names, right. labels, you know, all the regulatory issues right. that we have to deal with today. The back panel, you know, the amount of work that goes into this stuff. I mean, it's, it's really amazing how long it does take. And I don't think it's because we're slow. Right. I, I, I honestly believe just with the way of the world today, there's lots of things you have to check off the list before something's ready to go to market. And so how many of those brilliant ideas that the chemist comes running into your office with actually turn into a can of paint that we sell? It's funny. We have down in Flanders what we call innovation days. And so we have a lot of young formulators and stuff down there. And we give them an opportunity to do, you know, they have to do their day job, but they also have an opportunity to look at things that they could see in the future with regards to coatings. And we usually will pick a winner. It's a once a year thing. We just we just did it in October of this past year. So it'll be next right. fall sometime. I'll I'll make sure you're aware of it. And and they, they have all kinds of presentations, almost like going to a science fair. That's but cool. these are really scientists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, you know, they, they come up with some really creative ideas. Some of them you look at and say, cool idea, not practically applicable to what we do. And then others, you know, we fund and we go that next step. And and I I would say some of the things that have come out of there, we see on the shelves today and some never see the light of day. Yeah. Do you any sense of how many of them just die on the lab floor? I would say more die on the lab floor than make it to the... Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And so when do dealers get involved in that process? Well, I, I think that that's something we could do a better job of getting input sooner. But with that being said, typically in the early market phase, we'll go out and sit with a few retailers and say, okay, we have this new product. You know, we're in Dallas, Texas. You're the eight dealers we have in Dallas, Texas. Right. Here's the product. What do you think? Or they might've been the ones that even had had some need for something similar. And do you go back to dealers given mm-hmm. that opportunity? Somebody yeah. says, hey, we need the coding that does this, and you find that you do. Right. Would, would that dealer get a preferential? Yeah, what we would do is probably go to that market where the request came from and right. do the testing there right. and let them have input on you know what's working well with it. You know, as well as we do at thinking through everything, 
once you get into the hands of the dealers, inevitably, yep. there's something else that needs to be done or yep. something else that maybe we missed. You're talking about on the product development piece. Yeah, right? yeah. Like they get it and they say, you know what? Good can of paint. We heard this, this, this from our customers. And what I noticed when I tinted this, this, and this happens. Right. And, you know, why that, you know, we don't catch it. There's just lots of things. There's lots and lots of steps that are being done, but it does happen. And so something would be rolled out regionally. You'd go do that testing. You'd bring it back into the lab if it wasn't ready. And so at that point, could something still die or, or you're going to roll this out now? You've done it in a, in, a, in a market and you feel like you've just got some bugs to work out. Typically, once we get through the market test, assuming it goes well, it's going to go. Okay. Are there market tests where we make additional changes and then have to go back to the market and retest? Yes, but most instances, and in some cases, maybe it shouldn't have gone. And I think we have some recent examples of that. But we, we once it gets to that market stage, there's a high probability it's going to make its way to the market. So you gave me just too good of a question yeah. I have to ask you, but you say you got some recent examples of things that probably should not have come. Yeah. Let, let's talk about them. Yeah, I think I think that the way we rolled out Century is interesting because of all the steps and things that we typically do. In this instance, I think we dropped the ball in that we circumvented many of our normal protocols in an effort to keep it top secret and highly classified and we're afraid the market would learn. And what we've learned is we weren't collaborative with our dealers. We didn't listen to the feedback initially. And to date, our results have been underwhelming. And so we're working very hard right now. We just did a postmortem on the project. There was lots of things we had on the lesson learned side that were fails. Very few on the wins side. So we're looking at a number of options that we'll be talking to the dealers who currently carry Century to see what we do next. But, you know, it's one of those instances where, again, I felt like we fell backwards a little bit and we didn't listen. And when you don't listen, particularly to, you know, not only our employees who had a good feel for the marketplace, but our dealers, that's a risky proposition and one we shouldn't repeat. So, Dan, color tools are a huge component of a dealer's arsenal to sell Benjamin Moore's paints. They're one of the few impressions of Benjamin Moore's that actually gets taken home or taken to an architect's office. Uh, You must spend a a ton of money on these sort of peripherals. Can you walk us through a little bit how this works from design to delivery and, and even include in our conversation what your expectations are for some of these color tools? Yeah, well, I think that um, color is a differentiator for Benjamin Moore, and I think it's an important part, as you mentioned, to the independent dealer. So our expectation is is we truly do want to have the best color tools in the industry. We want to be differentiated there. We want them to look great. We want them to be usable tools for whoever's consuming them. We really want them to work well. And we do, to your point, and this is, a, this is an ongoing discussion, so your question is very timely, actually, Mark, because Just to give you an example, one out of every $4 that we spend in marketing is spent on a color tool. So that equates to, just to give you round numbers, about $23, $24 million a year we spend on color tools. Now, that's inclusive of chip strips and color cards and designer sets and the whole kit and caboodle. That's everything. That's everything. And I want us to, and I'm committed to us having the best tools, 
Sometimes I think, though, we may have too many tools. And could we then, you know, shrink the offering, not not lessen the quality, right. shrink the offering and take dollars to reinvest them in other ways to market the brand and, and do things. So we haven't made any decisions on that yet, but being candid here today, we're very much looking at that today because we think it's it's a big bucket of expenditure right. and we want to get the biggest bang for the buck as we can. And at the end of the day, we may do the research, and we're doing research. We're going to be talking to dealers about this. We're going to be talking to designers about this. And the feedback could be, you need more tools. And yeah. if that's really the, the message, then I'm not saying we would have less. We may have more. But just first pass, it seems to me like there might be opportunity there to have dollars freed up to market differently. To do something but, else. Yeah. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit about how the dealer plays into that process. Yeah. So... We're going to be doing some retailer roundtables starting here over the next couple of months. And in those roundtables, we'll have chapters of conversation. And one of the big chapters of conversation is going to be color tools. One of the big things we're going to talk about. Other things we'll talk about is pricing. Other things we'll talk about is product performance. You know, we've got a number of different things. We've, we've got a section on that we want to talk about some of the things we've talked about in the past with regards to succession planning. What does that look like to the independent dealer? What tools would you like to see? So there's a number of different things, but color tools will be chapter one. We, we want to get some real input on that because the independent dealers using those, you called them part of your arsenal, using them every day to help sell our products. Right. So we want to get that input as part of this process. And so how, so, so color charts obviously, or color tools fit into different categories, sort of the open fold pages that, that I know of as a dealer or the paint strips that I know of as a dealer and a lot of tools that you guys make for people outside of my store that I don't necessarily have so much interaction with. How are those needs identified? Do you have people yeah, we, here or architectural teams? Or? Yeah, we, we have our A&D team that's all across North America. Who what we, is AAD uh, stand for? Oh, I'm sorry, our architectural and designer rep okay. uh, team. I'm sorry. And uh, they, they're in contact with that community, but we also have an architectural design advisory board. And so we can do surveys, we can host webinars and get feedback from them. So um, those meetings are happening quarterly right now, and we have a team that works with them. And we're also putting together a paint adv painter advisory board. Similar, try yeah. to get painters to give us feedback and, and, and help incorporate but but those are the ways we're getting that information. And I think the painters are are often the the forgotten piece of that or some other tool. It's not an architect. It's it's not a guy trained to sell paint in my store. It's just the guy who wants them to pick a color so he can move on to the next one. Yeah, you're hundred percent right. And so the painter is is a big is a big piece of that. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about the goal setting process that Benjamin Moore's uses for uh, both long and short term planning. And as much part of that, how much are the dealers involved in that? That's a great question. Uh, as you know, we're owned by Berkshire Hathaway. And so I think one of the benefits of their ownership for both Benjamin Moore and the independent dealer is we're not a public company and we can plan more longer term than some of our competitors. You know, they have the pressures of Wall Street, the quarterly right. reporting. And that kind of thing. So we don't have to worry about that. And I, I like to look at it this way. We don't have to hit a home run every time at the plate. You know, if we can just consistently can hit some singles and doubles and, you know, if you like baseball, yep. um, you know, keep the base paths moving, mm -hmm. uh, we're going to be fine. And I think that fits well with our channel as well, our independent dealer network. 
with that said, we're, we're asked to grow. Our parent expects right. us to grow and, and return a profit. And so we have both long and short-term goals. So our sales territories, our sales reps are compensated on an annual basis. So, you know, they have a goal for this year. Right. And that goal can be a number of different things. But most importantly, it's growing gallons at the end of the day. Right. And, um, and they're compensated accordingly. And, and we plan by account. Uh, and by outlet level. So if you're a territory rep and you're responsible for, you know, 23 outlets on your territory, you're going through each one of them and saying, you know what, I call on Mark and I know Mark's going to have a good year. I'm going to mark him in for 10%. You know, I call on Bill and Bill's got some struggles or something going on in the family. There's this, there's that. Bill's going to be flat this year or Bill's going to be down 2% this year. And and you go through that with your entire customer book. Every sales every rep. Year. Every sales rep every year. And so that's a tremendous amount of effort and data. So how does that work its way up through Benjamin Morris to be of, of, of some sort of value to you? Well, that, that, all that information is rolled up to the organization so that we can do a higher level projection for both what our volume is going to be mm-hmm. and what our profit expectations are going to be. But even, even more so important to the actual operating of the business, our production plans are based on that. So, you know, we have to go out and procure raw materials. We have to schedule batches. We have to get trucks. And all of that, you know, comes into play. So when we have that number, which we have now, that work was due January 15th. Right. They have that work. Now our procurement team knows that, hey, Benjamin Moore this year is going to have a million-gallon increase. And right. Last year we bought this, this, and this, and we're going to need to buy more of that. We're going to need more trucks. We're going to need this. And so it's it's kind of end-to-end, and it starts with one outlet. Right. And, and so it's, it's interesting uh, because I think a lot of people, as a lot of dealers anyway, would think of you as CEO. You, they would think of you as maybe the top salesman mm-hmm. in the chain of all the people that take care of you know, the, the dealers. Mm-hmm. But in fact, you're, you're a paint manufacturer. Correct. Correct. So in my new role, I've had the opportunity over the last several months to meet with some of our largest suppliers. And right. not something I had done in previous roles here at Benjamin Moore. But, you know, we procure millions of pounds, I'll just right. say that, of titanium dioxide. Right. We're, we're a very large customer, for instance, of Tronox. Right. So their CEO came. He's a new CEO. It was kind of interesting. I was going into the role. We had dinner. We talked about our relationship. And it's very much like a conversation I'd have with you about your business. Right. Different issues, but it was supplier, customer, dinner, and we right. talked about things and what's going on. And I've had a couple of other dinners like that recently, all new for me. Right. Uh, but very, very interesting. And um, any so, surprises? You know what? No surprises yet. They were good meetings. They seem like reputable people. Good. Right. You know, good. It seems like our procurement team has a good relationship with them. They respect our brand. They respect what we do. And they're good companies, too, uh, it seemed like to me. So we'll see. I, you know, being so new, I, I haven't had that happen yet where I'm like, wow, I can't believe that happened. Or, wow, how could they let us down like that? Or, Wow, they really over overdid it. They really right. did a great job for us. So, so share a little bit while we're on this topic of mm-hmm. of sort of what what your day looks like, just in in rough terms. How much of your time are you a paint salesman, mm-hmm. and how much of your time are you a paint manufacturer? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I'm an early riser, so I mean to give I you a think re- you'd have to be for this job. Yeah, right? yeah, I am, and I always have been. But I I'm usually here very early in the morning, and probably the first hour and a half I'm here. Very few other people are here, right. and I love that because I, I, I do kind of a lot of my reading and 
thinking about things that we need to be doing. Give, it's quiet. I'm able to do that. And so I'm usually here between 6.30 and 7 every day. And most people aren't here till after 8. So it gives me a really good opportunity to get the day started. And then throughout the day, I have a number of different meetings. I come from the sales side of things, as everybody knows that right. knows me. And so you do migrate to what you like. Right. And so I still spend probably the majority of my time on the customer-facing side of the business. We're also currently making some changes in marketing, and I'm deeply involved in that right now. So I would say currently that I spend probably 60% of my time on the market-facing side of the business between sales and marketing, and probably 40% on the procurement, the supply chain, the labs, right. you know, that kind of stuff. And was there a big learning curve for you on that 40%? Yeah. Is, this is all fairly new for you, right? Yeah, there, there certainly was. I How mean, long were you in your previous role? Can I about ask? a year. And and that's when they started to give you some of the experience in the other areas of the business? Yeah, a little before that, Mike Searles had started allowing me to be more involved, you know, kind of setting up the plan for the transition. So right. I'd say about the last year and a half, I've been... Uh, involved, but particularly in supply chain with the change I made in June of last year, I had it reporting to me through the balance of this year. And just this week, I named our new senior vice president of supply chain. Very excited about that. But um, I learned a ton mm. uh, in the six months. You know, you work somewhere 31 years at the time and you think you know a lot. Right. And then you start going to meetings and meeting with people who have worked for our company equally as long as me. And you realize how important, not that I didn't realize they were important or value what they do, you don't have an intimate knowledge of what they do. You don't realize how valuable and how important it is. Well, when you're a salesperson, right, or even as a as a dealer, so in that respect, you and I are on the same side of the counter, so to speak. I don't have to spend a lot of time worrying about how that can got here. The, the customer tells me what they need. Oh, I've got a can for that. And I reach on the shelf. Yeah. But now you have to make sure that that can is there for me, right, in addition to uh, you know, making sure that I have the customers coming in to sell it. Yeah. So it's been it's been a year of a lot of learning on that front. I bet. I yeah. bet. Store of the future is uh, uh, clearly a large investment that Benjamin Moore's is is making. Talk to me a little bit about how this, or or maybe other large initiatives that that you have some experience with this, how they play out, how they start, how they grow, how they fade. You know, over time. Yeah. Just to give you a quick number, uh, in 2018, we spent $16 million on Store of the Future. So big investment for us, but one that was necessary. And we know our dealers who have participated spent their money too. And so where where is that $16 million spent? That's spent on all the fixtures and things that you go see going into the store and all, all the things to support that whole look and feel of Store of the Future. Okay, terrific. Yeah. So, you know, a project like that, that one was born out of necessity. I mean... We hadn't done a store upgrade program since the signature store program. And, you know, you and I have done this for a long time. That was 15 years ago Wow! when yeah. it really started and yeah. maybe a little bit longer in Canada. And therefore, you know, our stores were looking a bit tired. The, the merchandising and things was dated. And due to the recession and other things that happened eight, 10 years ago, quite frankly, the resources just weren't available. And... The leadership at the time wasn't willing to invest the dollars in that. And probably your dealers didn't have the resources. I think the store of the future, there's some sort of matching investment. Yeah. And so it, even if you have the money, if the other side doesn't, then yeah. then the other side doesn't. And so the pro, the program dies. Yeah. So so keep keep going on that track. Yeah. I don't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, so no. how So I mean that that program started with a group of people in twenty thirteen, believe it or not. And 
we did all kinds of travel and retail safaris and met with dealers and were visiting non-paint-related retail environments just to do some ideation around what could this look like and how will it look nice but also be usable and beneficial to the everyday person in the store in presenting the Benjamin Moore brand and color and product. And so, you know, that was kind of the genesis. And we worked with a number of engineering firms to help us get the the modules for the color displays and such right and uh, try to drive costs down to make it as cost effective without sacrificing the premium look and feel. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that that project really started rolling out aggressively in 2015, 2016, started in 2013, and this year will be the last year of the heavy lift. So you're looking at a six-year run from kind of start to finish. Right. So it's, a, it's and, and we've spent the money I mentioned, you know, year over year over year. So it's a, it's, it's a big expenditure for Benjamin Moore, and we recognize for our dealers, too, that have supported the program. But we do believe and we have seen evidence that the dealers who participate in the program are benefiting from it. Mm-hmm. And so how many dealers did you have participate in that? And how many dealers were you hoping would participate in that? Yeah, we just passed the 1,000 store mark uh, this in 2018. Mm-hmm. And this year, the goal is uh, to finish it off kind of without talking about the new stores we're adding, just right. the existing store. We have another 450. So we're going to be up around 1,500 paint and decorating stores that have adopted this program across North America. That's right in line where we, where we thought we would be. You know, we have some dealers that have elected not to participate. Some of it may be, you know, they don't have, to your point, maybe they're, they don't have the resources. Yeah. They may not like the look and feel. They don't think it works for their store. But most people you know, who we in, want it to. In my particular case, it's the infrastructure that you have. Like, I, I just couldn't make that work in either of the stores that, that I have. Right. You know, and so right. that's got to be part of it as well. Right. And we, and we have some dealers, believe it or not, some of our larger dealers who have, you know, multiple stores. It's expensive. Yes. I mean, to do... 10 stores, you know, right. so it might be a couple of years of phasing for them. And, and so, but, but we're very happy uh, with the results and how people, uh, with the people and the numbers that have participated. And so it's been good. And so you see some success from that. You said the dealers that are participating are, are showing signs of success. So is there ever a thought about making something like that compulsory? You know, I, I worry about that. You know, we went through that phase that we, we've talked about in the past where we strained our relationships. And I, I think that, you know, a dictatorial approach from our position is risky. I, I would prefer more of an opt-in approach where we reward for participation versus penalize for not participating. Right. It, it just philosophically, I think that works better. And so, you know, when you use the word compulsory, that makes me uncomfortable because of the implications there. Right. Do I think it's in the best interest of a Benjamin Moore retailer to put the store of the future into their business? I do. But I do think it's their decision. Right. And so you're comfortable then with Benjamin Moore stores looking different. Yes. Right. Some are going to be signature stores, which is what, what we are. Some are going to be stores of the future. Some are going to be hardware stores that sell yep. Benjamin Moore's in the back. Right. And and that you're, you guys are okay with that corporately. Correct. So, Dan, we're, we're getting close to the end. I, I know we spoke about taking some questions from dealers. Are you uh, ready to sit in the hot seat and hear what dealers want to know? Sure. 
So uh, a dealer in New Jersey wants to know, uh, Benjamin Moore's a number of years ago changed their policy regarding competitive brands in Benjamin Moore stores. Do you feel like that program has fulfilled its promise and fulfilled its objectives? Well, I, I believe that when that policy was put in place, it was a different time here at Benjamin Moore. But with that being said, did we grow our shelf space inside the independent channel through those efforts? Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. I think that loyalty programs are a good thing. I think they should be opt-in. I think that at Benjamin Moore, if we're going to have as our partner at retail, the independent channel, you have to understand they're independent and they have to do what's in the best interest of their business. So programs going forward, I think, will be one where they're opt-in. And we, we want the independent channel to be healthy. We think that if the channel's healthy, they'll grow, they'll buy more paint, and Benjamin Moore will benefit from that. So there's no doubt that that program or programs like it have worked, but I'm hopeful going forward we're able to put programs together that reward people for participation in them and aren't being viewed as punitive. Fair enough. Uh, a dealer in Rhode Island asks, sort of on the same topic, why does Benjamin Moore's allow dealers to expand into new locations with some brands, in addition to Benjamin Moore's, I guess what he's saying, with some brands and not others? And then specifically, he was wondering about C2, which is in sort of a unique situation. Do you want to explain exactly the structure of C2? Yeah, I mean, I, I, how I understand it today, it's kind of a combined ownership model between independent dealers and PPG. Right. And when we put the policy in place a number of years ago with regards to C2 specifically, there was some concern about the independent channel owning a brand and competing at the premium space with Benjamin Moore? Was that in the best interest of both? I'm not sure it was or it wasn't. I didn't write the policy at the time, but I understand why it was done and I understand the rationale. I'm just not sure it made sense or not. With that being said, today, as I think everybody knows, Pittsburgh Paint's a great company. They do great things, but they are a chief competitor of ours as well. Yep. And so, you know, any type of relationship that would involve them at retail, we take very you know, under consideration, we, we recognize a lot of our dealers carry Pittsburgh brand and that kind of thing. But with the odd relationship, and I don't know odd's the right word, but the different relationship between the ownership part and competing at that premium or ultra premium space just causes concern. Mm -hmm. And do you ever look back at those policies and, and consider making changes? Yeah. And, and with the C2 one, we have done some things where um, if the retailer was able to carry C2 but gave up their ownership position, we actually have gone and made some accommodations for that retailer. So it wasn't necessarily the competition for the gallons in the store. It was the ownership that was the bigger right. concern for you guys. Right, because there was an additional motivation for that independent to sell that brand because they had an ownership piece. And right. not that we begrudged them for that effort, but it was that in the best, a mutually beneficial situation is how we saw it. So we've, I, I know of several instances across North America where dealers have come to us and said, you know, we want to open another store. Your policy won't allow us because I carry C2 or whatever the case may be. And we have visited that, looked at it specifically and said, in, this, in the case I'm speaking to, they had given up their ownership piece. They still buy the C2 brand, but they're not an owner in the company any longer. And we kind of waived the policy and allowed them to open a second store. Terrific. Well, that's a terrific way to end it. Dan Calkins, CEO of Benjamin Moore, thank you very much for being on my podcast today and continued success in your new role. Thank you very much, Mark. And I'd like to wish everybody that's listening a great year and 
hope you have a really good business year and look forward to seeing some of you out there across North America. So this is Mark, my words, and I'm your host, Mark Lipton. Thank you for listening and check your inbox for notifications of more podcasts and blog posts at marklipptonpaint.com.